0: you're listening to the Hub City Church podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Great to see everybody on a, such a lovely morning. Snow two weeks ago and now it's whatever's going on. Um, great to see you guys. So I want to just jump in today, but Um, the starting from last week, um, a lot of you were here last week, but going through the story of the leper, I would just encourage if you haven't heard that story or, or even heard how we're kind of, um, working these messages together, last week is really important in the, in the string of, uh, teachings as well. Jesus has been doing something coming off of the Sermon on the Mount that is all connected and related. Um, Our English Bibles break them up into chapters and paragraphs and that kind of thing. So it can kind of in our mind, we can categorize them as these one off stories that are just super cool to to build a case for Christ. But um, they're all connected. They're all these incredible like this is actually happening in time there. So would encourage you to, to look back at last week if you missed it. Um, But we're moving forward in the story, Um, and if you remember from last week, Jesus um, is coming off of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been teaching. It's his main manifesto. It's his thing that he's going to be about. People are like, this guy's incredible. We want to follow him, but what's he going to do? What's his thing? And he says it. And You can go read that Matthew 5 through 7. Then he says what he's going to be about, what this kingdom of heaven is is going to be all about. He comes off the mountain, great crowds are following him, and he's there. And the last person that you would expect to be right in front of him was a leper. And This leper, he there's all this. We looked at it last week. All this ceremonial stuff. He shouldn't have been there. People shouldn't go near him. Jesus for sure shouldn't have touched him. And yet he goes and he actually touches him. He heals him. It's this incredible moment. So now as people are blown away by what they just witnessed, this complete outcast, this excommunicated man from his family, from his society. He was no longer considered an Israelite as an as a Jew. Uh, He's brought into the fold more than ever with an incredible testimony of meeting Jesus. There now has to be these questions for the crowd to be like, that was crazy. Okay, what's next? That was really cool, but okay, Jesus, let's get to the real stuff. When are we going to go undermine Rome? When are we going to go start the coup? Or maybe there's just a few who just really want to impress their rabbi. They're following. They say, Jesus, look at me. I just helped someone. Jesus, look at me. I just did something kind for someone, right? You'll get, I want the gold star from this rabbi. Jesus is going to continue to blow their mind and their expectations out of the water ever more um, now in this story. And as far as if the healing of the leper is way over here, he's now going to whiplash and go all the way over here and interact with the enemy of Israel here going to show, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, to, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And he's going to display it here for the people. So I want to pray one last time, um, or not one last, but one more time, um, and, then, uh, and then let's get into it. So will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you that God, I just pray as we've probably heard these stories and read these stories, God, that we just see it with freshness today, that we see truly um, just who you are, that you would reveal yourself, and as we see you, Christ, we know we are seeing God. Um, So God, we just give you this time, we thank you for your words, and pray in your name, amen. So verse 5, chapter 8. When he, Jesus, entered uh, Capernaum, Capernaum, whatever you say, Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Can we talk about centurions for a few minutes? I'm going to. (laughs) So just a few mile walk to the area called Capernaum. Which was a Roman garrison town, meaning there was a contingency of Romans there, probably a single company led by a captain who was called a centurion. The centurion was over, over about 80 to 100 men. It wasn't always just, it, contrary to the name, it wasn't just 100, uh, but 80 to 100 men, and would essentially be the enforcers in tho- those areas to make sure this province was governed well by Rome and paid its allegiances and taxes to Rome. Okay? So they would do this throughout the Roman Empire. They'd have they're called cohorts and a cohort was a centurion and then his men. And they'd have these spread out all throughout the region everywhere in the Roman Empire to make sure and enforce that people were following the Romans. So due to the nature of Roman culture, warfare, the life of the Roman military, this resulted in much competition between the centurions. They were all trying to govern their respective areas best so that maybe someone closer to the emperor would notice them and want to promote them, want to bring them into more power and prestige, get them out of these small, dusty back road towns, um, and give them, move them up in the ranks. And by the way, centurions were bred specifically for discipline, <clears throat> and known for their ruthlessness and brutality in war tactics. So this, when we say the centurion, this is not like your teddy bear camp counselor who just comes to Jesus, right? So Capernaum had a cohort of Romans led by a centurion just doing their job for Rome. This centurion should not have cared about the local religion of the town. They sh- he should not have cared about who was doing what, who was following who, but somehow, in some incredible way, this centurion had heard about Jesus. And now we have a little bit of understanding of the centurion and his position his first thoughts on Jesus should have been, and maybe could have even been, is this an insurrection? Should we be on guard? Is this a coup happening? Should I prepare my men to take military action? There is a massive crowd following this rogue preacher. Who knows what he's riling them up to do. But something else is going on. The centurion also has a servant. Now, this was not uncommon but what would be uncommon would be a centurion caring for his servant. It's lawful in Roman custom for a servant to just be dismissed if he or she was unable to do their duty any longer or even, unfortunately, too commonly just killed. And what's wrong with the centurion's servant? He was lying, paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Can this servant do their job? No. But what's the centurion doing instead? Caring for this servant. So we don't get the gravity of this as much in the Gospel of Matthew, but if we turn to Luke's account of this same scene, we get more of the emotion and the lengths that this centurion goes to get Rabbi Jesus' attention. So this is Luke chapter seven, same scene. After he being Jesus had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When a centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. So pause. And remember, different gospels have different points of view and different purposes on why they're writing, okay? So Jewish elders and centurions of Rome don't really mix, unless this is a, like a super sketchy, corrupt situation. So most, if not all, Jews had many reasons to hate the Romans, especially their leaders. And yet here a centurion goes to Jewish elders to see if they could get Jesus's attention. Like this was a centurion of Rome. If he wanted to, he could just go arrest Jesus, put him in irons and say, do your magic on my servant, right? But Luke lets us in on a surprisingly uncommon character of this centurion. This is Luke 7, 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. Remember, this is the Jewish elders. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. It struck me, actually, uh, re- when Gabe was reading it. What did the uh, centurion say? For him not to come, because I am not Worthy to have you. But here the Jewish elders say, He is worthy to have you do this for Him, for He loves our nation and He is the one who built us our synagogue. This centurion, he was not just a bored, sadistic military man, but actually helped the community he was in to thrive. He apparently helped build a synagogue in Capernaum. And for Jewish leaders to say, This Gentile Roman captain is worthy to have you a Jewish teacher, to have you do this for him is remarkable. This centurion's really made an impression. Now back to Matthew. Matthew writes as if the centurion is right in front of Jesus, right? But Luke says he sends a delegation. Is this one of those moments where you're like, ah, the Bible, come on, right? And this is exactly the point that we will see later on. Who the centurion sends speaks and acts on the centurion's behalf. Meaning whoever meets Jesus on his behalf is just as as much as if he were there to meet Jesus himself. Put a pin on that, more on that later. So somehow this centurion gets a hold of Jesus and appeals to him, that language is significant. This is what centurions would do with someone who ranks above them. For example, they would appeal to Caesar. They wouldn't just waltz in and start asking questions. Centurions don't appeal to their subordinates. Appealing was not just the centurion questioning, this was someone who considered themselves a lower rank than the Jewish rabbi was, which is crazy though, because the centurion was the highest rank. So he's saying to this Jewish teacher, I'm appealing to you as if you were higher than me. And then to top it all off, what does he call Jesus? He say, hey you preacher, Hey, you Jewish dog, sometimes they would call him, right? He appeals to him as Lord. To become a centurion, this man would have sworn allegiance to Rome, which also means allegiance to Roman gods and to Caesar, who was considered to be like a god himself. To call Jesus Lord is getting kind of close to dangerous territory for this Roman leader, but it's an interesting dilemma for him to know what do you call Jesus? Jesus isn't Roman, So he can't be called anything like the centurion understands in a chain of command. Teacher means nothing to him. Rabbi means nothing to him. Even leader doesn't quite get what it is. So he goes with Lord. The centurion is giving him the highest title he deems appropriate for his station and who Jesus is. Now, sidebar real quick. If you read commentaries, you read books and stuff like that, sometimes people have taken this to mean the centurion was a believer that the centurion here has given his life and his faith over to Jesus Christ. But I just want to remind us real quick, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7:21, this is what Jesus taught. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so keep that in mind. Take that to heart when reading this story. We really can't come to a conclusion about the centurion's fate But this story still teaches us much about faith and how the kingdom of God is affecting and available on those outside of the Jews. So in this situation, Jesus has a few options. Go with the majority of what the crowds would believe he'll do and somehow spurn the centurion or say something super clever to make the centurion just tuck tail and run, right? And start their glorious rebellion. But instead, how does Jesus respond? Back to Matthew 8, verse 7. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. The way this is written in Greek, some scholars believe this to be more of a questioning statement. Oh, you want me to come heal him? Okay, so the idea is Jesus responding with, and you, a centurion, want me, a Jewish teacher, to come and heal him. Like, why not trust in your gods? Why not trust in your modern medicine or Roman healers? Nevertheless, here, he says, I'm willing to go to a Gentile's home to help him. And somehow this centurion gets word that Jesus is willing not only to help him, but come to him. See, much like the leper story, this could have been dangerous for Jesus ceremoniously. It would have been against Jewish custom for Jesus to enter into the home of a Gentile. But here, Jesus showed his willingness. I'll come. I'll be there. Just like he broke barriers to touch the leper, he would enter this Roman Gentile's home if he could. Remember the Isaiah 6 passage we looked at last week, right? That There are all these places where holiness could not invade, and yet there was a vision Isaiah had where holiness was invading the dark, messy places and people. Jesus is bringing that here. Verse 8, but the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I mean, this man figuratively and literally stops Jesus in his tracks. To go from Jesus, I'm appealing to you, I'm pleading with you to help me, and Jesus shocks everyone by saying, okay, I'm on my way. And now for the centurion to say, no, wait, don't actually come here, just say the word, and it will happen. Now back to the idea of representation. For a soldier to disobey a centurion was the same as a soldier disobeying Caesar. This centurion was the local representative as if Caesar was there himself. So by his word, he knows he's speaking for the higher power of Rome. But the, he flips this now for Jesus, guys. We gotta get this. It doesn't say he understands what's going on or anything like that, or he, but whatever concept he has of the Jewish God He knows something is happening through this Jesus. Whether this man is God himself or not, their God is certainly flowing in and through him. And if he can speak for God like I can speak for Caesar, then his word should be enough. Jesus marveled at him. This man doesn't know proper theology. He isn't necessarily a follower of Jesus, but he just got the secret that Jesus was and will be saying over and over again that he has come to earth on behalf of God. What he does is as if God is doing it. What he says is as if God is saying it. What he wills is God willing it. Do you guys understand? This pagan Gentile centurion just understood that Jesus was the word of God. Explosion sound. Guys, like we talk about Jesus being the word of God so often, and honestly, so flippantly. I'll just speak for myself. It's like, yeah, the word was made flesh. I get it. Literally, Jesus is the word of God, the image of the invisible. You want to know God, know Jesus. Like this, this Roman centurion is like, I see it. You represent you're here. But he might not understand you are God. Like there's a lot of that kind of stuff, right? But he gets it in that moment. Right? No wonder Jesus marvels at him. He, so Jesus turns and he speaks to those around him, mind you, mostly Jews who are around him, of this kind of faith. So he says, I tell you, this is verse 11, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Just picture that scene, okay? This is like the messianic banquet. This is kingdom of heaven stuff, right? While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is continual suffering. Gnashing is continual anguish. What's Jesus saying there or here? Those who think they're in and deserve a seat at the table will be sorely disappointed. Jesus says many will come from way over there and way over here and be welcomed in before those who just assume that they're already in. Right? A faith like the centurion knows faith to be is the kind of faith that God wants for his people. The faith in God and his power. The example is not in the centurion's lifestyle. It's in the centurion's realization and example of what faith is. And this is the point of the story. Not if the centurion is saved or even really if the servant is healed. That's all an awesome bonus. It was to highlight the kind of radical faith the people of God were supposed to have. This is a faith like a mustard seed, right? Small in front of them, but representing something so much larger when it's planted and grown and cultivated. And yet they were just schooled, all these Jewish followers of Jesus were schooled by this enemy of Israel who saw that Jesus was the word of God in the flesh. And Jesus rewards this kind of faith, verse 13. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Incredible, right? But I want to go back real quick to when Jesus turned and what he said to his followers here. See, Israel was no longer a nation state, a unified nation state. They were completely spread out. All the Israelites were completely spread out to all different towns, many towns mixed with Gentiles, obviously conquered and overseen by the Roman Empire. Technically, there was no nation of Israel anymore. But Jesus brings up specific words here. What does he say? He doesn't say, not even in Capernaum do I find this faith, not even in Jerusalem do I find this faith. Not even in Israel have I found such faith. He's hearkening back, not just to a nation state, but to a covenant people. He then name drops the founding fathers of this covenant, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, the picture of the great heavenly banquet that is the nation being completely unified together again. But the beginning of of God's covenant with Abraham back in Genesis until now, God has been proving over and over again he will do what he says he will do. And he said that he would bless the nation of Israel, not just for their own sake, but to be a blessing to all nations. Jesus is reminding the people that God isn't interested in making an exclusive club of insiders. He's wanting to find the lost sheep. He's come for all the broken, all the sick, all the sinners to save a people for himself where he is their God. Going from the leper all the way over here to the centurion all the way over here shows that as far as the east is from the west, God will not discriminate in his mercy and salvation and removal of transgressions. The Jews hearing this would be shocked at the idea that at the great messianic banquet of the Lord, there would even be the thought of outsiders there. That they no longer had a right just because of heritage, but Jesus was revealing it was about the state of their heart for God in faith. So much so that even a Gentile could be included if they believed in their heart and had that kind of faith. Jesus is breaking down paradigms left and right. But of course, the purpose of Matthew's account here is not to sow confusion, right? The question now could be asked with some anxiety. Well, then, how do we know who's in or not? Who's in? What do you have to do? So far in Matthew's account, we've heard Jesus say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then what does he say to his his disciples? Follow me. He's talked about the kind of radical life that the kingdom should look like in his Sermon on the Mount. And now we're here with him demonstrating that the kingdom is in fact very near, flowing in and through his very self, speaking and acting as if God was there in the very flesh. So very simply, he hasn't given instructions to only a certain kind of people, or to say a certain kind of prayer of salvation, but simply believe in me and believe in and seek after the kingdom of heaven that I am revealing to you. And here's where the story turns to address some of the rising fears. Jesus shows that his inclusion of the outsider is not necessarily the exclusion of the insider. Immediately after feeling the shock of helping a leper and then whiplashing next to helping a centurion and actually calling him faith-filled, Jesus enters into one of his own disciples' home. Verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So just a few um, comments uh, just to lock away for free. So this home here, this was the home of Peter and his brother Andrew, okay? Peter was apparently married and cared for his mother-in-law. And if you wanna check also 1 Corinthians 9, 5, it sounds like actually a lot of the apostles were married at one point. But this is worth noting because it was unfortunately common In that time, if someone, especially an older elderly, was sick or dying to not care for them, in the name of keeping clean, or it could be purely financial, or they just didn't have the resources for it. If you've ever taken care of someone, it takes a lot, right? It's hard. So also significant is what day it was. Okay, this is really cool. According to Mark and Luke's account of this healing, it was a very specific day. So let's go to Mark chapter one. Jesus is walking around, he has his disciples, Mark 1, 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And you can go read that story. It's really cool. He does some teaching, does a miracle. It's really cool. Then skip to verse 29, Mark 1, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came, took her by the hand, lifted her up. The fever left her and she began to serve them. So what day was the healing on? Sabbath. Incredible. Like Just lock that away. Because he does it here in private. Later, Jesus is gonna get in so much trouble for doing it in public. But can you imagine this heartfelt scene? Peter's witnessed the leper. Peter's witnessed the centurion, okay? There's some of these, his followers might be feeling a bit of this, like, okay, wait, I don't understand. I thought we were in. I thought we were your disciples, right? But he comes in here. Can you imagine just the, the, the closeness he would feel here? That Jesus comes into the privacy of Peter's own home. On the Sabbath, he comes in, gently takes his mother-in-law's hand and heals her. Now, is he violating Sabbath? Remember, Jesus isn't here to remove or abolish the law, but to actually fulfill it. So let me read you real fast, Exodus thirty-one, twelve. This is kind of the point of the Sabbath. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Sanctify meant to consecrate, to set apart for holiness, to make holy. Again, going back to that Isaiah 6 idea of making holiness contagious. In fact, one of the ancient names of God is Adonai Mekadishkim, which means the Lord who sanctifies, is part of who he is. Peter, his wife, his brother, and his mother-in-law all know what the Sabbath is for and about. And Jesus reveals the Sabbath sanctification is not for religion, it's for healing. Jesus meets this sickly woman and sanctifies her on and through the Sabbath to now be an active participant in his mission, setting her apart, consecrating her to be an active participant. And only he can do this. We'll get to this later, but Jesus will claim to be the Lord of the Sabbath, showing here that the Sabbath wasn't for religious piety, but for healing of the body, the mind, and the soul. I set that time out of the week to stop, meet God, and be restored. And what does she do when she's healed? She immediately serves him. It's cool to think about her role of mother-in-law as host of this home. Her honor to be able to show, to now receive her guest. She wasn't able to do that. To show hospitality, to honor the Sabbath, even in her own way. It would have been an incredible joy and worship to her as one, as the host. And now, the story we're gonna conclude here, the sundown has come, which symbolizes the end of the Sabbath, and would allow now all the common people to come and bother Jesus again and bring him their requests. Verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Matthew, I love this, he doesn't want his hearers and readers of his account of Jesus to forget that Jesus isn't just a rogue healer and preacher. He is fulfilling the law and the prophets with everything he says and does. Isaiah 52 and 53 speak of the Messiah coming as a servant who takes on the burdens of his people to bring them freedom. Here's a snippet of Isaiah 53, I'm sure you've heard before. It was very common in Jewish custom to believe that sicknesses and illnesses were at some level, either directly or indirectly, caused by sin. But one of the main prophecies here of the Messiah is that of substitutionary atonement. The idea that one would come who would take on the people's burdens and sicknesses, essentially removing their sins, taking them on himself so that the people would be fully free and declared clean. This whole section from the leper here, this whole section has been showing Jesus' willingness to take on the sins of the world. So much of Jesus is taught that he came to judge the world by condemnation, making people feel bad or scared out of hell. And he does judge the world, but by salvation, not by condemnation. Read John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. did not that? Did not but in order that the world might be saved through him. And it goes on to say it's the rejection of Jesus and that salvation that condemns the person. If Jesus came to condemn, think about it, he would have never have met, let alone touch, a leper. He would never even entertain the thought of helping a Roman Gentile centurion. He would have scolded his own disciple for housing a sick person, and he would have shunned those looking for healing so that he could stay ceremoniously clean. Do you want to follow that, Jesus? (laughs) No. Instead, Jesus is breaking all the barriers, showing his salvation stretches from the outsider leper to the outsider centurion to the intimate inner sanctum of his own disciples, families, and then everyone in between who would come to him and would give him and he would give them rest. Church, this is the Lord that we worship today. This is the Lord who wants to sanctify you, set you apart, partner with you on his mission to heal this sin-sick world. We get to care about Albany and the surrounding area. We can't let these just be stories that are cool. These are the foundation of the same God you and I encounter today. But the same is true as it, today as it was then. God is found in Jesus. If you want to know God, know and follow Jesus. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities, and what he asks in return is, come and follow me. Give me your life, and I will be God with you. And he's not found in anything else. John fourteen seven or 6, I am the way of And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except.